but today is the beginning of Passion Week. Some call it Holy Week, I suppose. I like Passion Week. Um, and today is our Palm Service uh, Sunday, so Palm Sunday service. And so we welcome you to that. And uh, how many of you guys have ever, like, you know, you go to a church and they always do something around, like, you know, Passion Week, man. They, they lay it all out throughout the week. They have you come down to the church like 96 times, right? Have you ever been to, some churches do that. They have you, like, like they, they've added, like, you know, they've added, like, uh, special days to the Passion Week. There's really, like, three that are represented. But how many of you guys have ever been to, like, an entire Passion Week thing where you, you did, like, the Palm Sunday, you did, like, the, the Good Friday thing and then Easter? Let me see a show of hands. Everyone or no? Yeah, it, it's weird, right? Because churches really aren't doing that a whole lot anymore. Maybe they'll slip in something on Good Friday. They'll definitely do something on Easter. But uh, Palm Sunday is not, uh, not as popular, I suppose. But we decided that we wanted to be a blessing. The leadership wanted to be a blessing to you guys and, and kind of just illustrate the whole thing throughout this whole week. And so we're really excited about that. Christians um, <clears throat> literally throughout the world recognize and celebrate three special days that took place during the Passion Week. Uh, each day represents a key biblical and historical event. It's a little historical lesson on what Passion Week is. The whole celebration begins with Palm Sunday. And I suppose for some it begins with like Ash Wednesday, which was like 40 some odd days ago. Uh, but really, uh, Passion Week really begins with Palm Sunday, which is today. It represents the Sunday that the Lord Jesus Christ made his triumphal entry um, into Jerusalem, and many of you know the story. He was on the back of a, a donkey, donkey colt, uh, while people were laying cloaks and, and palm branches on the pathway up into the holy city, and you know they were screaming and crying out Hosanna and all these amazing things. And so the whole celebration begins with the Lord's entry into Jerusalem. The next celebratory day is Good Friday, which would be this Friday coming up. We do have a service that. Uh, night, I won't be preaching that night. Some of you are going to rejoice in that because I'm so long-winded, but um, we're going to have a lot of scripture reading that night. It's going to be really cool. We're just going to kind of read through, you know, from the Lord's Supper all the way through his burial, and uh, it's going to be really neat, kind of candlelit. Man, bring your kids. We're not going to have childcare or anything. We want families to be together that night, really every week here, but, um, but bring your children down, and it's just going to be a great time of worshiping the Lord. So the next one coming is Good Friday. That represents the Friday that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross, died for the sins of many, and was buried in a rich man's tomb. Then the final celebratory day is one that the entire world is pretty much familiar with, and that's Easter Sunday. That, of course, is this coming Sunday. And uh, it represents the particular Sunday that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave and conquered sin Satan and death, and man, that is, a, that is an amazing time of worship there. In fact, you know, the church began to, early on, first century, began to essentially worship on Sundays because it's known as Resurrection Day, the day that the Lord rose, and so that's why we worship on Sundays, and does that mean you're crazy if you worship on a Saturday or whatever? Not necessarily, uh, but Sunday is known as the Lord's Day. It's Resurrection Day. And that's why churches gather on Sundays to worship. So it's a big, momentous day, amazing day of worship and celebration where we worship Jesus because he rose from the grave and conquered sin, Satan, and death. Now take your Bibles and uh, turn on over to, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 is where we'll be at. 
this morning. We're going to go ahead and do an exposition of uh, Luke's account of the triumphal entry. Pretty, pretty amazing section of scripture. Um, pretty broad. Got a lot of interesting things happening in there. And so we're going to be looking at Luke 19, and then we're going to go from 28 to 40. Uh, for those of you that, that call this place your church home right now, you're thinking there is no way Pastor Phil is going to get through 12 verses. Um, I am. I don't make promises, but uh, no, I am promising you we will get through it. But uh, this is a big section for me. I, I'm one of those guys that gets hung up on little words, you know, and wants to stay on a word. I, I, don't, I don't understand what the hurry is in trying to teach through the you know, the Bible and, and hit on all these topics and how to better your marriage. I don't understand all that stuff. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't compute. What we're supposed to do is take our time expounding on Scripture, going through it slowly, learning the gospel, applying the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do. And so that's what I do. That's my conviction. And if I changed it, the elders would crucify me. Uh, but anyways, Luke 19, 28 to 40, we're looking at Luke's account. Why did I pick that one? I've already taught through Mark's account before. So I'm trying something fresh. I'm trying something new, right? It always drives me crazy when guys preach the same old messages over and over. Man, I want to learn something fresh through study and share it with you, right? Amen. So I studied this whole passage for like the first time ever. I've read it a zillion times, and I was like blown away by it. And I was really worried last week. What, how many ways can you come at the triumphal entry? Uh, if you're going to actually teach through the Bible line by line, you're going to find a zillion ways because that's just how the Word of God works. It's just so broad and extraordinary. So we're looking at Luke's account, 19, Luke 19, 28 to 40. I'll go ahead and read it and I'll pray one more time. Then we'll begin to examine and apply it. Amen? You guys good with that? Let's do it. Luke 19, beginning with 28. <clears throat> of course, I brought the Bible with the world's, world's smallest font. To be like this, like Poindexter looking at this thing. All right, that's why I got glasses. Here we go. And when he had said these things, referring to Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Beth, uh, Bethphage, is how it's pronounced, Bethphage, and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village, words of Jesus, red letter, if you have a red letter. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. It says in 32, so those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, <laughs> figures, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Probably thought we were going to get some grand colt theft going on here. Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Okay, they said what the Lord said for them to say. And they brought it to Jesus, it says. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 37, as he was drawing near uh, as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Love that. 39, and some of the, here we go, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
And then he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Father, this is an amazing passage of scripture. Just the illustration, what you've given to us, the revelation and illustration of how your son, the, the, the savior who came, basically was wrapping up his ministry, the last week of his ministry, and he's about to enter into Jerusalem, which was dangerous business, Lord. Uh, people were gunning for him, wanting to kill him, wanting to kill Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. There's a lot of things going on here, Lord Jesus. Make them known to us, but more importantly, make known to us the true principles of this passage in who Jesus is. Uh, we ask you, Lord, to open our hearts and minds during this time. Uh, and, and I know, Lord, this is a time where distractions come, where we start to think about uh, the bills that we need to pay or the things that we need to do today and the rest of the day and this week. And I just pray against all of those distractions, Lord. May we humbly sit quietly and just listen to your word taught and, and be changed by it and by its power. So bind up this moment, Lord. It's for you. Have your will and way done here. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Just a little bit of context. Uh, just prior to the triumphal entry, okay? Just prior to this event, this account for what we just read. Prior to it, here's just a small list of th some things that had just happened in the last week and week and a half before this particular moment that we're reading about. Jesus raised Lazarus to life. Okay, and you see that over in John eleven thirty eight 38 to 44. That's something that took place just before Jesus made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Another thing, Jesus was anointed by Mary, his friend Mary. You've heard of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany. Jesus was anointed by Mary, his friend, at Bethany, John 12, 1 to 11 illustrates that. That's another thing that happened just prior to this. And that might have been a day or two before. Jesus healed two blind men. One was Bartimaeus. If you look at the account in, in Mark, Jesus healed bl two blind men kind of on this journey towards Jerusalem. Uh, Matthew 20, 29 to 34, and then Mark 10, 46 to 42. Interesting that he had just done that. And then also, Jesus taught the parable of the ten minas. We see that uh, in the passage that precedes the one that we're in in Luke 19, 11 to 27. So those are like four things that he did, uh, you know, five or six days, maybe, maybe up to 12 days before he actually got on this donkey and rode into Jerusalem. And it makes sense when you look at 28. It says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus basically wraps up his parable of the ten minas, and then he he sets out for Jerusalem. Let's look at that verse 28. It's a spectacular verse. Do you see much there? It really looks very simple, doesn't it? But it's really, really loaded. Let me read it again, and, and, and we're going to just dissect it a little bit. Verse 28, we'll begin there. And when he had said these things, when Jesus taught the parable of the ten minas, did some of the other things, said some of the other things, it says he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. I love that. Verse 28 says that Jesus went on ahead. Now, this is a remarkable, remarkable little statement that Luke puts in here. It's remarkable. It shows us three, really three amazing things. Now, these are three things that I picked up on, which means that it probably shows a lot more things. But I've got three amazing things that that little statement shows us. And the first one, all of them very, very important. The first one, it shows us that Jesus was leading. 
that Jesus went out ahead. He was ahead. He was leading this group. He was leading these disciples. He was leading his 12. He was out ahead, which means he was not behind others, which means that he was not, as they say in the military, bringing up the rear. He was not off to the side. He was not off to the side. He was not wandering around, okay? No one was leading him to his destination. He was leading people to his destination. He was out front. I love that. First thing we see, on the way, on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus is at the helm and he's out front and he's leading. Some speculate that Jesus just mysteriously wandered into Jerusalem, then ended up getting himself in hot water and killed and all of that stuff. And a lot of the liberal Christians try to say those things as if Jesus wasn't leading. Jesus was leading. And there's such a tremendous parallel for us. I asked myself this question when I saw this. He's out front, right? He went on ahead. The first thing that I asked myself is that, is he leading in my life? And it just seems like a, a dumb question to ask a Christian. Obviously, we'd say, of course he is. Really? Has he gone out ahead in your life? Is Jesus leading in your life? Is he leading in your home? Is he leading in your family? Is he leading in your relationships? Is he leading in your marriage? Is he leading in your church? Sounds stupid to ask such a question, but not during this day and age. Is Jesus leading? One way that you know if he's leading in your church is if the men that teach the word expound on scripture and don't throw endless topics at you. Is Jesus leading in your church? Everyone says yes. It's a default of the Christian. Of course he is. Really. It's going to look a certain way if he is. Church is going to behave a certain way. It's going to have biblical patterns. It's going to do certain things. Is he leading in your ministry? Is he leading in all of these areas? Or have you or someone else taken the lead? There's so many ways to evaluate ourselves. One of the grandest ways, and pastors often say this, is just look at your bank statements to find out if Jesus is leading. How do you spend your money? Do you spend it in a way that glorifies him and accomplishes his purpose and advances his kingdom and blesses and builds up his church? Oh, he's leading my life, but, you know, my bank account, he's not... He's not really sovereign there. Or in some of our relationships, I, I can't wrap my mind around how many. It's not all, believe me, but there are so many young adults today that think it's, you know, they, that Jesus can lead their life and everything's cool and they're following him and yet it's okay for them to fornicate with their future wife or girlfriend or whoever it is. Jesus isn't leading in that relationship. You are. And there's a zillion other ways that it applies. We are so quick to say that Jesus is out front, that he went, he's gone out ahead in our lives. But if we're to be honest with ourselves and to evaluate our lives, I don't think we would be so quick to say that. And I could just tell you as your pastor, there are areas in my life that I need to surrender over to him, that he needs to be leading. Just as a, I mean, oh, you're the pastor. You're supposed to have it all together. Are you kidding me? Huh. I'm at war. You should be too. Uh, every day is a battle 
to remember the gospel and what's been achieved and accomplished for me. And, and, and every day is a battle to allow Jesus to hold his position of sovereign king, sovereign God, sovereign Messiah, sovereign, sovereign, sovereign leader in control, me submitting to my king. Every day is a struggle. But in this text, he went out ahead. He was leading. He wasn't just aloof and, hey, there's the holy city. Maybe we should check that out. No, he was blazing a trail. He was leading. He was leading these people. Another thing that it shows us, number two, it shows us that Jesus was willing, okay, this is huge, willing to endure suffering to receive his, what, prize. Jesus was destined to receive the highest position in all creation, seated at the right hand of God. He was destined to receive a people of his own, his church, his elect. He was destined to receive endless as he stepped out of it and forfeited for a season, but to return to endless glory, endless honor, endless prestige, endless praise, right? That's what he was going to receive. But before receiving his prize, he knew, he knew that he had to first endure betrayal, rejection, mocking, beatings, the cross, the wrath of God, whoa, the sins of his people being placed upon his holy, perfect body. What else? Separation from the Father. He became an abomination. Death and the tomb to get to glory. He had to endure something that I believe no man could endure. No regular human man. Jesus even warned his disciples that he was going to go through these things three or four times in the Gospels. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed in, placed in the hands of sinful men and beaten and, and killed and then raised on the third day. Over and over he warned his disciples. And Jesus went on ahead because he was willing to endure one to receive the other. And by doing so, Jesus set a model for his followers. Christians have to endure many things in this life before receiving the glories of the next life. We go through trials. We go through persecutions we go through catastrophes we experience rejection abandonment disease loss and sadness don't we but James 1 2 says blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial who makes it through all of those things for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him if we are willing to hold to the faith hold fast to the faith willing to endure suffering in this life, which is the very thing that the gospel commands. God is faithful to reward us with the crown of life in the life to come. Jesus went on ahead. Will you? Will you press on? The prize is worth it. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings, what? The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just by looking at the triumphal entry and Jesus coming in and enduring and then being ascended and glorified afterward. Wow! 
What an example that is to us. That we'll have to endure suffering, persecution, disease, loss, pain. I can think of a handful of people in our congregation at this very moment who are suffering tremendously. They weren't suffering so bad they'd be here, and I wish they could hear this. Maybe they'll go back and listen to it online. Also, the Bible teaches that God is, and I said it, sovereign, and that salvation is entirely the work of His hands, which means that He will bring what He began in you to completion no matter what you go through or experience. Romans 8.29 says that God predestined to conform believers into the image of His Son. In eternity past, God planned to save you and make you like Jesus. Nothing can stop that. Oh, it's certainly, think, you know, we, we, we think that things can slow down that process. Those difficult things that come are meant for your sanctification. Not to stop it or to hinder it. God is sovereign. In eternity past, he chose to save you and make you like Jesus. What? God's immutable. You will become like Jesus. Hallelujah. No matter what you go through. No matter what you experience. No matter what forms of rejection or whatever it is, the cruelty of humanity, whatever it is that can throw at you, or nature itself, or disease, or fallenness. You see the example that Jesus is setting for us? I'm getting to this, but I got to go through all this. He knew it. And we have a God who chose you. If you're in Christ, he chose you before the foundations of the world and predestined chose not just you know figuratively speaking or in the abstract i'll try to make something out of them no he chose you and predestined to make you like jesus by his power by his providential will his sovereign will and then in romans 8 38 to 39 paul wrote that in light of what god has predestined to do and will accomplish he wrote that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you, no matter what you're going through, from the love of God, and nothing can separate you from His sanctifying power. He will achieve His purposes in your life. Why? Because those things have been secured in Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus forever. You know, when Jesus completed his ministry and his life and his, his you know, and he died and he was buried and he, and he rose, he secured all of that, all that sanctification and transformation and salvation and, and future glory and blessings and, and all of those things, they, they were all like put inside of him as if he was a safe and locked for all eternity. They're locked away in him. He's impenetrable. Nobody can take those things from you. It's amazing. Lastly, went on ahead, shows us that Jesus was determined, right? He was determined to complete his mission Jesus was sent by God the Father on a divine rescue mission to save people from sin, Satan, death, and hell. To do so, Jesus had to do what? What did he have to do? He had to live a perfect, sinless life. 
He had to uphold and fulfill the covenant of works that Adam, Eve, and everyone else breached. He had to meet God's righteous demands through perfect obedience to his holy law. He had to take upon himself the sins of many. He literally became sin, it says in scripture. He had to die for sinners as the final sacrificial lamb of God. He had to pay the sin debt owed to God by sinners with his own precious blood. We call it propitiation, big term. What else did he have to do? He had to satisfy the wrath and justice of God. He had to transfer. What else did he do? He had to transfer his perfect righteousness. Remember, he obeyed the law perfectly. He took that perfect righteousness and he had to transfer it to the account of unrighteous sinners to make them holy and pleasing before God, acceptable to God. He had to be buried in a tomb for three days and fulfill two key prophecies that took place during that. We see them in Isaiah 53, 9 and Matthew 12, 40. He had to defy and defeat death for good. And prove that all that he said and did was true through the miracle of his resurrection. <laughs> Went on ahead shows us that Jesus was resolved and determined to bring all of those things to completion. For who? For you and me. How encouraging is it to know that Jesus was not hesitant. That Jesus did not delay, that Jesus did not lollygag, that Jesus did not tarry, that Jesus did not turn back, that Jesus did not pause. What did he do? He went on ahead. We have a wonderful God. Resolute. Those are three things that I picked up on that were really encouraging to me. Now look at verses 29 to 30. It says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, or two of the disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. And then he says, untie it and bring it here. When Jesus got close to Bethphage and Bethany, which were both suburban communities of Jerusalem, he told two disciples to go into the next village to fetch his transportation for the rest of the journey to Jerusalem. We're just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem at this point in the narrative. He told them that as soon as they entered, they would find a cult that had never, it was tied up and had never been ridden before, and it was basically ready to go. Uh, obviously, the cult that Jesus requested was the cult of a donkey. Why didn't Jesus, uh, these are the thoughts that come to my mind when I read these things, and I got a weird mind, but why didn't Jesus request a more dignified animal like a horse? Can you think about that? We're talking about, you know, donkey. We're talking about that donkey in Shrek. Imagine riding that guy around. We're talking about a donkey. Why didn't he request a more dignified animal like, like a horse? Horses were popular then. Why did he select a donkey? Well, first he had to fulfill prophecy. We had it read to us earlier, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. King, right? Coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on what? Black stallion? No, on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Secondly, donkeys were ridden by people from every background and social class during Jesus' day. Donkeys weren't considered clunkers that only the lower class folks could, you know, afford and ride. I can't afford that, that model right there. They're at the, you know, at the pen looking at these animals. and All I've got enough money for is a donkey. Actually, if you owned a donkey, you were probably pretty well off. 
Donkeys weren't Ford Pintos. You know, some of you remember those. My mom drove one. I used to duck when she dropped me off at school because I was so embarrassed to get out of the dumb thing. You know, you've seen the karate kid when he pulls up into that beef wagon station wagon and, you know, hi, and he's like, oh, gosh. You know, the house is beautiful, and yeah, that was my complex when I was young. I didn't know Jesus. My value was in our vehicle, obviously. But donkeys, you know, they weren't clunkers that only the lower class folks could ride on. On the contrary, the scripture indicates that riding a donkey is not at all beneath the dignity of Israel's noblemen and kings, 2 Samuel 18, 9 and 19, 26. Indeed, David indicates his choice of Solomon to be king by decreeing that the young man should ride on the king's what? Own mule donkey, 1 Kings 1, 32 to 40. Thirdly, donkeys were ridden by non, and this is key, donkeys were ridden by non-military personnel. Warfighters rode horses because they were fast and agile. Jesus chose a donkey. Jesus chose a donkey because he wasn't coming to Jerusalem to make war and to conquer and to unseat the Romans and the Herods, the Herodians. Jesus chose a non-military vehicle, a donkey cult, because he wasn't, actually, because he was sent to make war with Satan, not with man. See, riding up on a horse and all that, you know, splendor and speed and, and agility, that's not why he was riding in. He wasn't riding in to make war with the Romans or anyone else there, but he was at battle with Satan during this entire thing. War with Satan initially began in heaven when the devil rebelled against God and was cast down. The war broke out on earth when Adam and Eve sinned and welcomed in the war. But Jesus entered into the world as our general to win a decisive victory over Satan through his life, death, and resurrection. Battle could not be won through military strength from the back of a horse. Ridding Jerusalem of the Romans and Herodians would have no positive effect on the battle that was being waged with Satan. In fact, physical fighting would have benefited the devil and his minions. Jesus had to die on a cross in order to fulfill prophecy, make the atonement, and win the victory against Satan. He, didn't, he couldn't have died in battle while trying to free the Israelites from the Romans. Ultimately, Jesus came on a donkey in righteousness and in humility so that he could keep the peace which would enable him to finish up the final stages of his mission unhindered so that he could win the ultimate victory according to the plan and strategy of God. Victory was won at Calvary and through the resurrection. To come in blazing in on a horse and to start a battle with the Romans right there would have ended things very quickly for Jesus and everyone with him. And he would not have accomplished what he came to do. I love it. We don't want to think in terms that Jesus wasn't at war. He was. But not with people. Principalities. Satan himself. His minions. Also take notice that Jesus gave clear instructions that the donkey must be one that has never been ridden. Animals were often set apart or consecrated for special purposes. Take, for instance, the Passover lambs. Passover lambs were, you know, loved on and cared for by the family for like the entire week before they were to have it killed. They fell in love with the animal, and then when they had to offer it up, it was this big tragedy to them. But these animals were unblemished and set apart and consecrated for the purpose of making a temporary atonement for the people at Passover. Those animals were designated for that. 
Or what about the two milk cows that were yoked to the cart that brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem from the Philistines? Those were special, unblemished animals that were used. Consecrated animals had to be without blemish. They had to be never ridden before. And they had to never been used for work. Jesus requested such an animal. Why? Because he is holy and set apart. Because he is consecrated. When Jesus indicated to his disciples that he should ride on a donkey that no one had ever ridden before, he was initiating a public kingly act. He revealed openly that he is the Messiah by choosing to do so and by doing so. Pretty amazing what the Lord had going here. Look at 31 to 36. If anyone asks you, Jesus says, why are you untying it, the colt he's speaking of? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent uh, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Mark's account says they also put down palm branches. Luke doesn't include palm branches, but the palm tree, palm branches were sort of a national symbol of the nation of Israel. And so when they're putting these palm branches down, they're expressing, expressing their nationalism. And their expectation is this, this is our king and he's going to come and liberate our nation from the Romans. That's why they're putting them down. But Luke doesn't put any of that stuff in here. Again, Jesus told them that if anyone questions you for taking the colt, tell them that the Lord has need of it. It would appear that Jesus may have, had, he may have made some sort of previous arrangement with some of his friends, and he had friends all over in the village to borrow one of their consecrated donkeys. It might be that he had this set up and he had a particular saying and, you know, hey, I'm going to send guys ahead at some point in the future and you said you'd offer me anything or give anything over or help me in any way and I'm going to need a consecrated animal. He might have worked this out with these folks, these friends, in, in, in advance. And then the password was the Lord has need of it and then they just would release it. It could be that Jesus had some prearrangement or it could just have been basically a supernatural thing. He could have miraculously looked ahead, saw the donkey and... Fix the owner's response, I suppose. But I don't suspect that that's what he did. I think that the owners were his friends. They certainly acted like his friends by letting the donkey go with no further questions after being told who it was for. Notice that? They didn't say, but they just released the donkey. The text says, the text says that two disciples took off their cloaks then, once they brought the donkey back, and threw them over the colt. Why did they do that? Because it didn't have a saddle. Why? Because it had never been ridden before. These guys wanted to make Jesus comfortable for his ride in. And so they kind of threw their, their cloaks over the donkey to fashion a little, bit of a, a little bit of a cush for him as he rode. Pretty interesting. They just took him right off and put him on there and said, yeah, we're not going to let the Lord, we're not going to let Jesus, the king, we're not going to let him ride this thing bareback. Not on the back of a mule without some cushioning or something. Our Lord is deserving of that. And so they took off their own clothing. There's an aspect of humility there. 
You know, most guys had one cloak. If they had two, they were told by the Lord to give one up to someone who didn't have one. This was a major garment that these guys wore. To let Jesus sit on them is most certainly a, an expression of humility, to lay down the cloak. Verse 36 says that while Jesus was riding along, others began to lay their cloaks on the path before him. This was a gesture of kingly submission. When Elisha, not Jah, Elisha anointed Jehu as the next king of Israel in probably around 842 BC, he led him up the stairs to the rooftop of the building they were in so that everyone in the area could see the new king. While Jehu was ascending, going up the stairs, those who were present began to take off their cloaks and they began to lay them on the stairs as he went up. So he ended up walking up the stairs over their cloaks. They did this to show their support from him, for him, and they did this to show their willingness to submit to his protection, rule, and leadership. Now, Jehu was one of Israel's most decorated military leaders. His campaigns against the descendants of Ahab were not only successful, but absolutely deadly. He, he literally destroyed the house of Ahab, which was by far Israel's most evil, wicked king. Jehu hunted down Jezebel, you've heard of her, like Sodom Hussein. He found her hiding at a residence, had her thrown to the ground from an upstairs window, trampled her with his horses, and then left her to be eaten by wild dogs. And in a similar way, Jesus was being received and treated like Jehu. Those around Jesus had the same expectations and hopes of their ancestors. They wanted Jesus to be the next Jehu. Do the same thing that Jehu did to the house of Ahab and Jezebel, that harlot, that despicable woman. Do the same thing. They're gesturing. Do the same thing to the Romans. They're doing the same thing. They're, in their minds, they're thinking of Jehu. Jesus is the next Jehu. He's come to do unto the Romans as Jehu had done unto the house of Ahab. That is their expectation. That is their desire. That is their hope. That is what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to root out the house of the Romans and destroy them as Jehu had done to the house of Ahab. They wanted Pilate thrown from a two-story window, trampled under Israel's horses, and left for the wild dogs. Starting to see a picture of what's going on here in this passage. Verse 37, verses 37 to 38. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, really close proximity, 2,500 feet above sea level, mountain right there at the edge, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed, here's what they were saying, here's what they were praising, here's what they were shouting. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they backed it up with peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As Jesus approached the holy city, Jerusalem, the multitude began to rejoice and praise out loud. Who was, great question, who was this multitude of disciples? If you look through the gospels and look at Jesus and how he moved about, you know, that whole region and, and did his ministry. He had massive groups of people following him at times and he had small groups following him. Whenever he taught very difficult things about the cost of discipleship, people left him and fled from him. I'm not interested in following him. 
I want to be delivered, but I don't want to be, you know, put to death. Death to my flesh, death to myself, which is something that Jesus taught. But here in this text, we see that there was a large, a massive, a big group. It's a multitude. Massive, massive group. Who were these people? According to John 12, 17, these people, this multitude, were the people that began to follow Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead at Bethany. Okay, so this was a new group of disciples that had been following Jesus for a week, week and a half. They heard about what happened with Lazarus. Some of them witnessed it, and boy, they just came to Jesus in droves. They were blown away. Listen to what Spurgeon said on this. This is brilliant. He said, the Lord had worked a most remarkable miracle. He had raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been buried four days. This was a miracle so novel and so astounding that it became town talk. We would say talk to the town. Multitudes went out of Jerusalem to Bethany. It was only about two miles distance to see Lazarus. The miracle was well authenticated. There were multitudes of witnesses. It was generally accepted as being one of the greatest marvels of the age. And they drew the inference from it that Christ must be the Messiah. All of these people bore witness to what he did with Lazarus, which was one of the greatest miracles of all time. And, and, it, just, it, and it, it, just, it just multiplied. People were talking about it. Hey, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. This is incredible. And it just multiplied. And people were just coming in droves and coming and, 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 hearing, and hearing the testimony and learning and then watching Jesus and listening to Jesus. They were even considered disciples, multitudes of disciples. The raising of Lazarus caused this great multitude of people to follow Jesus. Look at what else they did. What were they doing? They praised Jesus with loud voices. What did they say again? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This saying is a combination of two verses. Psalm 118.25 and Psalm 148.1. The priests would say it to the people as they entered the temple to worship and offer their sacrifices. They would say, blessed is what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a standard issue blessing to the pilgrims and to the worshipers as they were coming to bring their sacrifices. They would come into the temple through the beautiful gate, enter the temple grounds, and that was the standard issue saying that the religious leaders, the priests, would say to the people. They would say that to them over and over and over. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every time a new one came in, blessed is he who comes in the name. They must have got tired of it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those who were following Jesus, however, actually modified it a little bit by changing blessed is he to blessed is the king. Do you see it in your Bible there? The standard issue temple blessing was now being applied to Jesus who they believed had come to absolutely wreck in the name of Jehu, wreck the Romans and establish his kingly throne. Now this isn't the first time that something like this happened, something very similar to this happened. We read in John 6, 15 that after Jesus fed the 5,000, not the four, he fed 4,000 in Decapolis, he fed 5,000 just uh, northeast of Capernaum. When he, after he fed the 5,000, he had to literally flee to a secluded place because the people were about to take him by force hoist him up on their shoulders, march him into Jerusalem and proclaim him as their king. These people were saying, blessed is the king, not blessed is he. This is our king. Blessed is the king. God has sent this man. He is our king. Something very similar happened before during Jesus' ministry. People were by force trying to force him to be king. Take the throne. Be our Messiah. Be our deliverer. 
all in a physical sense. Very interesting what's playing out. Look at 49 or 39 to 40. It says, and some of the Pharisees, there's always got to be those guys there, right? And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I love it. Wow. Talk about being out of touch. Teacher, rebuke your disciples, right? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I love that. There were Pharisees present. There were always Pharisees present during the ministry of Jesus. There were Pharisees present. And when they heard the people praising Jesus as the messianic king, as they heard him, these people praising and proclaiming these things and changing up their little blessing and applying it to Jesus, they went to Jesus and commanded that he stop them. There's an imperative here. It's not, hey, could you, that really bothers me. Could you have them stop saying that? No, they're saying, make them stop. Make them stop saying that. That's blasphemous. Jesus, do something about this is what they say to him. <coughs> but Jesus replied by quoting Habakkuk, love it, 2.11. If they were silenced, the very stones would cry out. In Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, Habakkuk, context, you got to have context every time. Habakkuk issues a warning to the Chaldeans. He wrote that any Chaldean, and he probably preached it, I'm sure, he wrote that any preached... Any Chaldean who robs from the remnant people of Israel to build up his own household will himself or herself become robbed of his own or her own possessions and very life. And then in verse 11, Habakkuk wrote that even the stones and beams of their own houses would cry out against them for their theft. Now here's the parallel. The Chaldeans were robbing the Israelites of their belongings, the remnant people of Israel of their belongings. In a similar way, the Pharisees were trying to rob the people of their ability to praise King Jesus. Jesus essentially told them, if you rob the people of their ability to praise me, the stones themselves will praise me, they'll cry out and glorify me, and they'll cry out against you for your theft. What an amazing warning right there, prophetic warning. Now we must know that the Pharisees were well studied in the scriptures, so they knew what Jesus meant. Hence the reason why there were no further interruptions. If you look at your text there, they didn't say anything or try to hinder the Lord's entry into the city at all from that moment on. Yet they knew that Jesus was applying Habakkuk's warning to them. And just by their disposition and attitude of being the most religious and hating Jesus, we know that that had to boil their blood. All the more reason to kill Jesus. I mean, if you look at the Gospel of John, they wanted to kill Lazarus for being resurrected. They wanted to kill Lazarus for being resurrected because they, Lazarus was getting all the attention instead of them, and they wanted to kill Jesus for doing the miracle. Amazing to me. Pharisees were well studied. They knew exactly what he meant, but needless to say, they left Jesus and the multitude alone and let the procession continue without hindrance. Now, according to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus arrived. This is really interesting. According to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus arrived at the city rather late in the day. Okay, and then after entering the gates, he went into the temple for a bit. And because it was already late, things weren't happening, going on at that particular moment, whatever, whatever's playing out here, he decided to leave with his 12 and go back to Bethany and stay at the house where he stayed at with Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. So Luke kind of continues to say Jesus wept over Israel right after he came into the city. But 
that's, that chronology's off right there. Luke's not wrong. That actually happened, but it happened like the next night. And so Mark tells us that Jesus, after he entered into the city in all this splendor and glory and praise, okay, on a really reduced level, he was on a donkey, he didn't have this massive procession and all the things that, you know, a Roman's, Roman conqueror would have or some other king, but after he came in, it was late in the day, and so he didn't stay long. He returned and went back to Bethany. There's a great question um, that I thought of, and that's that what did Jesus actually do during the Passion Week beyond the cross and resurrection and his entrance? What did he do beyond those things? Do we ever think of those things? We always focus on him coming in and then him dying on the cross and the trial and all that stuff and then resurrection, which was really the, day, the first day of the next week. But what did he do during that week? I'll tell you what he did. What did he do between the triumphal entry and the Last Supper? According to the Gospels, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus cursed the fruitless fig tree. Jesus cleansed the temple the second time. Jesus taught the parable of the wicked tenants. Jesus said this famous saying, we're all familiar with it, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees with his seven woes, as recorded in Matthew 23, one of the most scorching, blazing passages in all Scripture. Holy Jesus, Son of God, lighting these religious leaders up like you can't imagine. What else did he do? He taught about the poor widow who gave all she had. He prophesied about the destruction of the temple, right? That was a popular one. He was anointed for the second time, okay? He was anointed by Mary at Bethany the first time. The second time he was anointed at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. These are just a handful of things. These are 10 things that Jesus did during that week. If you look at the Gospels, there's a whole bunch more. He did a lot of stuff. If you cruise through the Gospels, you'll find that he did much more things during that week. And in my opinion, it would appear that the last week of Jesus' ministry seems to be the busiest week of his ministry. He did an enormous amount of things during that week. Lots and lots and lots of stuff. Now, every day he could be found in the temple teaching the people. Not just teaching in conversation, sitting on a bar stool with a latte. No, he was preaching powerfully the coming kingdom of God. He was preaching powerfully these parables. He was doing what he could to stir faith and repentance in the lives of these worshipers that were there to celebrate the Passover. Every day, every day he came into the city, preached like crazy in the temple courts, and then went to Bethany and recovered. And then came back the next day, and he had the cycle of going and coming and going and coming. Preaching, 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 the kingdom is at hand. Parable after parable. Another thing to consider is that Jesus only performed one miracle between his triumphal entry and the Last Supper. That's interesting because the end of the book of John says that he did so many things there's not enough books in the world to record all of them. But during this week, the only miracle that he performed was he cursed the fig tree to wither, the fruitless fig tree. It's the only one that he did during that week. And then he took that example of that tree that had died and said that's what's going to happen to the nation of Israel because they're going to reject me. Hands down, that's what's going to happen. That's what he taught his disciples. The only miracle that he did. Why? Because he was teaching, preaching, teaching, preaching over and over and over. He did no healings. He did no feedings. He did no exorcisms or any other type of miracle between those two events during the Passion Week. The last week of his ministry was all about teaching. And we need tremendous clarity for why Jesus came, because we think that he came just to do miracles and just feed people and just do all these acts of compassion and kindness. He did, but he came to testify to the truth. 
That was his primary mode of ministry, and to die on a cross for the sins of many. That's why he came. Miracles and all those things were used to authenticate his message. They were. That's what he did. All week he taught. He taught like crazy. Now, the interesting thing is, is that as the people listened to him, as the people listened to him, they slowly started to realize that he wasn't who they wanted him to be. They kept listening to the parables. They kept listening to the sermons. They kept listening to the discourses. They watched the most religious people who they honored and, and glorified and praised, the scribes and Pharisees, get rebuked like never before. Jesus told them that every convert you gain is twice the son of hell as you. That would be like going into the Vatican and telling the Pope and all of them in there that. Can you imagine how the people would respond to you if you were to say such a thing? They hold the Pope in dreadfully high honor. Exalt him as a god. Many of them do, not all of them. But could you imagine re Jesus rebuking the Pope in such fashion? He did that. And guess what? That had a negative effect on a lot of people because they truly honored and respected and loved the religious leaders because they thought they had it all together. Just as they're watching Jesus and listening to him and, and preaching these things, their hearts are being turned against him. He's starting to sound like someone who hasn't come to do what we need him and want for him to do. How about the example when Jesus prophesied that the temple was going to be destroyed? Uh, you're coming here to liberate us so we can worship in the temple for eternity. What are you talking about it being destroyed? See, when he taught these things and said these things, people began to become disenfranchised. Wait a minute, you wouldn't rebuke the religious leaders. They're the best. Wait a minute, you wouldn't denounce the temple. You wouldn't denounce the holy city. You wouldn't use the, you know, withered fig tree as an example to say that the nation is going to get all jacked up. You, are you confused, Jesus? The disenfranchisement is beginning. It's happening as they're listening to him teach. It's happening as they watch him and listen to him. The first person to become thoroughly disenfranchised was Judas. Judas wanted Israel returned to its former Davidic glory. And for a season, he believed that Jesus was the man for the job. But the Lord warned him and the others several times that he was going to be betrayed, killed, and raised from the dead. Three days before Jesus was nailed to the cross, he prophesied about the destruction of the temple. That was the final straw for Judas. After the Lord and his disciples entered the city, the next morning Judas went to the chief priests and brokered a deal to sell Jesus out. During supper that night, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Passover meal, Judas left early to go tell the chief priests that Jesus and the others would be in the Garden of Gethsemane later that night. The rest of the people, you know, this multitude, this big group, all these people that were hanging out and all these pilgrims that were there were probably a couple of million people in the city during this time. Whoever it was that was interested in Jesus, the rest of the people, okay, the rest of them became disenfranchised after seeing that Jesus had been arrested. It was inconceivable to them that that could happen to their messianic king. Wait a minute. We just, we hailed you as king and, and, and you've done all these powerful miracles and you raised someone from the dead. We've never seen anything like that. Certainly you must be him. And, and yet you've been arrested. You can raise someone from the dead. 
how, how did you get arrested? You see, when they saw his arrest and they saw his junky, you know, made-up trial before Pilate and all of that, they're looking at him and they're in, and they're in the governor's, you know, colonnade and, and, and Jesus is up there with Pilate and they're looking at him and saying, we're, we're so perplexed, we're so confused. There's, there's no way our messianic deliverer could be arrested by mere men. He, he must not be him. They lost hope in him, and their hope turned to hatred. They felt betrayed by Jesus, even though he never said or did anything to cause them to believe that he was going to deliver them militarily. Five days earlier, they shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then while gathered in the governor's court, they shouted what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Things to consider from this passage. A little point of application for you. Jesus went on ahead. Jesus led the crowds. Is he leading your life today? Are you following him? As I said, we're quick to say yes, but does our lifestyle, let's be honest with ourselves, we don't have to hide anything here, does our lifestyle actually show that we're following him? Evaluate these areas of your life to see if it's true. How about obedience to his word? The world will know that you belong to me by how you love one another. The world will know by how you obey. Do you obey what scripture teaches? That's a surefire way to test. How about evaluate your holiness? Do you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk and, walk and live a life that's pleasing and holy to Jesus Christ? Do you please Him with your life and with your relationships and with all that you have and with all that's been bestowed upon you to steward? Are you holy as he is holy? Set apart, different from others. Another way is evangelism. What did Jesus come to do? Testify to the truth, to evangelize. Do you evangelize? Do you share the gospel with others? Oh, all the time. Good. Don't, don't try to say that because you live your life a certain way that people will figure it out. If Jesus had done that, then he'd just be one more good guy, wouldn't he? The gospel is a verbal message, and it must be backed with good works. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Do you share the love of Christ with others? Do you share the gospel? Do you share the reality that it secured in Jesus, there is purpose, there is an identity, there is security, there is hope, there is joy, there is peace that transcends all understanding, there is all that you need is in Jesus Christ. And the reason why you flood yourself with all these things is because you're trying to figure out what's wrong with you. Only Jesus is going to meet those needs. And that's evangelism, friends. Obedience, holiness, evangelism. He went on ahead. Is he leading your life? Evaluate those areas. Are there other areas? Certainly. 
my prayer for us as a church is that we, or is that actually that Jesus would always be leading us. He is the lead pastor of Redemption Hill, and we need to follow him. I need to follow him moment by moment. You need to follow him moment by moment. He is the leader. Second thing, second thing to consider is the Lord has need of it. Jesus sent two disciples to get a cult for him to ride to Jerusalem, and the owners gave it over as soon as they knew who it was for. The church has need of your time, talent, and treasure. The Lord commands that we invest those things so that his church can be built up. Are we like the owners of the cult? Have we responded? Do we respond quickly without hesitation to the Lord's command and request to give of ourselves freely time, talent, treasure? And then what about the quality of what we offer to the Lord? The owners of the cult gave to Jesus a consecrated animal, an animal that was set for holy purposes, religious purposes cult had been given life and birthed and raised up just for the king of Jesus, just for King Jesus. It's amazing to think about. What sort of quality uh, behind what we're bringing forth? Are we bringing forth Jesus' consecrated gifts, our best? What are we presenting to the Lord through our worship, through our giving our time, talent, and treasure? Are we giving him our best. Certainly he is worthy of it, is he not? My prayer for us as a church is that we would be quick to respond to the Lord's commands and requests, just as those owners of that animal were. That we would be obedient because we're secured in him and we can give of ourselves freely. That we would give generously from the best of what we have. And thirdly, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That was the praise of the people on the very first Palm Sunday. They worshipped their guts out, didn't they? But who were they worshipping? They were worshipping the Christ of their imaginations, not the Christ of Scripture. The Jews had no need of a spiritual deliverer. Nationalistic pride was at its highest point. That's why they laid down those palm branches. All they needed in their minds was a physical deliverer. And at that particular moment, they thought that Jesus was him. Every ounce of worship, not all of them, there were some true disciples there, but all the worship from everyone else that was offered up that day was nothing more than filthy rags because it wasn't done in true faith. They had a Jesus of their imagination. I wonder how many people in the church today worship a Jesus of their imagination. I think there's more that worship the Jesus of their imagination that worship the scriptural Jesus. I do. I'm study, I've studied church history. I look at the church today. I look at, I've, you know, I forecast. I look at what's going on. I look at what churches are doing and all of the prosperity gospel and all the junk that's out there. Just nonstop stuff. People worship Jesus that's a figment of their imagination, a Jesus of their own concoction, a Jesus that they have created in their minds. A couple of parts biblical, but mostly part fantasy. All driven from a selfish desire to get something from God. It's horrendous. In John 4.24, Jesus said that the true worshipers of God must what worship him in spirit and in truth. 
The multitude that day had plenty of spirit. Emotions were high and their hearts were bursting and pouring out, but they had no truth. They did not believe what Jesus taught about himself, about the coming kingdom, or about them. There were, was no repentance, there was no faith behind the worship, which means that it was filthy rags. What kind of praise are we offering up to the Lord? Do we praise him in spirit and in truth? Do we praise him with hearts ablaze and with minds that are flooded with the knowledge of what he has done, of who he is? My prayer for us as a church is that we would bless the Lord's heart by worshiping him rightly in spirit and in truth every day, every week as we gather.